news. I have uh, moved the location of the show before the show podcast, um, but just like across the room. <laughs> not, not what, what does this mean? Like, what are you what are you getting at right now? Not anything exciting at all. I uh, my my sister and brother in law were in town with their kids last week. My sister's like a she's like an amateur interior designer. She's a big uh, she's a big interior design person. I brought her into my office and I was like, I don't like the way this is laid out. So she told me how to move stuff around. Feel like it would create some more space and and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so the desk where. All of the podcasting magic happens is now all the way across the room. By all the way across the room, I mean like, you know, eight feet away. And um, it's very exciting stuff. It's a whole different vantage point for this show before the okay. show. Yeah. yeah. I think I feel like you're painting a picture for the yeah. people at home. Normally we're talking about like where – what room I'm recording in and, right. or Ben and I are recording right. in. But now the, the table Or what random turned. Midwest city I'm in for whatever right. reason. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, now the tables have turned. So take that, Sam. <laughs> I, I feel it. That's all right. I'm, I'm totally okay with not telling everybody exactly where I am at all times. <laughs> oh, man. So hey, with that, welcome into this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. He's Sam Dykstra. I am Tyler Mon. Uh, it is this week's episode, which is uh, number 246. And according to Sam's note, the year 246 started on a Thursday. And that's where we're recording this. So, that might be the lamest email subject I've, I've I ever like sent. I apologize. Yeah, I like that one. I like being tied to history. I like that. Like I think about like January first of two forty six when the ball dropped in Times Square. What were people doing? <laughs> I think that's how it yeah. worked. I think that's when, how it worked. When all the deer uh, yeah. on the island of Manhattan gathered at right, it was a, it of- was like a swamp back then. You know, right as yep. they as they say. Um, <laughs> So we're off to a rollicking start yet again on this week's episode of the show. We got a lot coming up for you on the show before the show this week. Uh, spring training is getting underway. Games and such now uh, across Florida and Arizona. And uh, we'll talk spring training topics here in a moment. But uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. Sam Dykstra is on Twitter at Sam Dykstra MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. Uh, you can find us there. Give us your questions, your thoughts, your comments, your concerns. You can also leave us a rating and a review and a subscription and all that. Um, <clears throat> we're going through a, a – uh, a check of you know just the the health of the podcast and mes- metrics and listening and all that and uh we, we got five stars still on itunes we're six years into this show feel good about that that is very good That's pretty great uh we are in a business in which it is good to be good 30 percent of the time right um so for six years to still be getting five stars is good we are very happy about that and continue to rate us on itunes i mean that really does spread the word for people and um, we're glad for the reviews we've gotten so far but yeah yeah only if you're gonna give us five stars yeah it actually doesn't work if you try anything under that so you might as well just not try that's what i've heard invalid anyway yeah it's just a you know it's one of those things um so with that Let's kick off this week's episode with three strikes in segment number one. We're talking three topics in minor league baseball and uh, games already underway. We have already seen uh, some big prospects do big things in the first few days uh, of spring training games across the minors and uh, across the majors, I should say, across the Cactus League and the Texas League. I know uh, today in batting practice, Ryan Mountcastle of the Baltimore Orioles hit a light tower in left center field. Uh, I think they were in Sarasota and... um, scared the crap out of some birds that were hanging out on the light tower uh that's probably not the sort of topic we'll be discussing but uh early spring performances sam for strike one who's standing out among your early spring performers 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Ryan Mountcastle. Not that he was necessarily on my list, but then uh, today he doubled in his first two at bats and then hit a homer after scaring those birds. So, you know, we knew Ryan Mountcastle. You're feeling it. You're feeling it. Right. The guy was the IL MVP last year. We knew his power was pretty good, but for him to show that off all in one day was was really kind of something special. There are a couple of guys on my list I want to burn through them re- real quick. The one that's by far stood out to me the most and it's kind of unfortunate because he's only played a couple of games, but uh, he's really made them count is Riley Green, who was the first round pick of the Detroit Tigers last year. Anybody who knows Riley Green knows he did pretty well last year climbing up through the Tigers system. Um, but this is his first spring. He's not even a non-roster invite to big league camp. They brought him up a couple times. Tells you what they think of him, even though he's only, you know, still a teenager at 19. He turned 19 in September. This is his line so far in Grapefruit League play. He has had five plate appearances. He has two home runs and three walks. Pretty good. He has not only an OBP of 1,000, a batting average of 1,000, he has a slugging percentage of 4,000. You literally can't get a slugging percentage higher than that or an OBP higher than that. It's kind of insane. Not that I want to like set expectations on that and literally, you know, smallest of samples, but uh, for him to take off like that this quickly is, is really something special and it's a little bit legendary in that way. I haven't dug into the numbers, but – the idea of somebody homering in their first two at bats of grapefruit league play. I wonder if that's ever happened. Uh, so for him to do that at 19 is really something special. Uh, one other one I want to point out is Trevor Larnick of the Minnesota twins. Uh, anybody who's been following Toolshed the last couple of weeks knows I did a story on him and his power going into 2020. Uh, you know, he showed off a good hit tool. The Twins right now, one of the best power hitting clubs in baseball. They actually set the record for most home runs in a season in 2019. If Larnick's going to find a place in that Twins lineup, he's going to have to show off power. Lo and behold, he homers in back-to-back games. Uh, so far, he's hitting 375 with a 1.630 OPS. Again, that's only over 10 plate appearances, but the fact that he has two homers when he said that was such a point of emphasis, that's what we're looking for in spring, is guys can say all they want, this is what I'm working on, this is what I've been focusing on. But now is the time to put that into play, to see him homer like that. And especially, you know, when I talked to him, I, I said, how much did it help for you personally to get out of the FSL? And he said, oh, you know, no longer having to play in those pitchers parks was a big thing for me. Now he's still he's not technically playing in the FSL, but he's still playing in those Florida State League parks. And to show off that power again is good for him. Uh, somebody else I want to mention real quick on the pitching side. I got to watch Clark Schmidt pitch today uh, for the New York Yankees. He spun a couple of great breaking balls. You'll remember we had him on the podcast, I think, two weeks ago. Talked about his development coming off Tommy John and, and getting healthy again. Certainly looked at looked it. He was pumping mid-90s uh, for the Yankees today. That's going to be an interesting camp to watch because Luis Severino – uh, you know, d- diagnosed with an elbow issue. He's going to need Tommy John surgery out for the entire season. I don't think Clark Schmidt is necessarily pitching for a rotation spot right now, but he is pitching to make an impression. He wants Aaron Boone. He wants Brian Cashman, the decision makers to see this is a guy with major league stuff. Uh, and we can call upon him when we do really need it after we took turn to the Montgomery's and the Lysigas and all those guys. Uh, so he's making it his impression really well in camp. Another guy Jesus Luzardo, uh, our Katie Wu, who we will talk to next week 
uh, from Arizona. She's been down there a little bit looking, especially at A's camp. She got to watch Jesus Cesardo pitch in his first outing. I think he threw two scoreless innings. But the quote that stood out to me was that he was pumping a 95-96 and said afterwards he wasn't throwing max effort. Now, anybody who knows Luzardo knows he's had a history of injury problems. He's has Tommy John on his ledger. Uh, he had some problems last year, but he made the majors as a reliever. Now the A's want to use him as a starter. If he's at a place right now where he's throwing in the mid-90s and he's feeling comfortable doing that and he's not throwing as hard as he can, uh, that's a great sign for getting that stuff to last until the fifth and sixth innings. They're probably going to limit him a little bit this season because, again, coming off last year when he was limited by injury issues, they don't want to work him to 200 innings and break him down at this point in his career. But, again, somebody who's actually pitching for a major league spot, we all assume him and A.J. Puck will be in that Oakland rotation. Uh, but solidifying his place with the way he's been throwing so far, that's been a lot of fun to watch. Uh, two other guys I'll, I'll throw out just real quick, not top 100 names just yet, but Jaron Duran. Uh, of the Boston Red Sox, hit a home run off top 100 prospect Mitch Keller, went the opposite way. Power's the really the thing that's going to determine what kind of player Duran can be. We know he was a really gifted hitter last year at Class A Advanced Salem. He is a really fast runner on the base pass. Uh, the Red Sox would love to find a spot for him in the outfield at some point, but he's going to need to show a little bit of power. Homering the opposite way off Mitch Keller the other day was a big way of showing that. And Jose Garcia of the Cincinnati Reds, uh, somebody who's right on the cusp of top 100 status, I would say, uh, really broke out a little bit at, at Class A Advanced Daytona last year. I know he'd had a couple down years. He came into pro ball with pretty good status. Watched that go down. Last year built it back up. Now he's probably going to start out at double A, which as we know is knocking on the door of the majors. What is he going to be able to do? Right now, through eight played appearances for him, he's got two home runs and a double. Uh, so things are coming together for him. He's making the impression that he needs to make to climb quickly through that red system. Uh, so, you know, it's only been about a week and a half so far of Grapefruit League and, and Cactus League play. This is minor appearances here and there, but uh, it is kind of fun to see some of these guys who we were circling coming into spring already showing out or in the case of Riley Green, somebody legitimately surprising us. Strike two this week, uh, the prospects who are already in action, uh, guys who we're pumped about seeing. There are also, of course, the kind of bummer story sometimes early on in the spring, injuries and the effects of prospects and uh, on systems of those injuries. There's already some storylines in the early going, unfortunately, in the, uh, the 2020 campaign for some prospect injuries. Yeah, the one that stood out to me was Brandon Marsh uh, so far. Brandon Marsh, Los Angeles Angels outfielder, uh, you know, all the talk this spring is going to be about Joe Adele. We know that after the Jock Peterson trade went through uh, or fell through, I should say, uh, you know, Joe Adele, the, the clock is ticking until Joe Adele can make the majors. But, you know, some people might forget that Brandon Marsh in his own right is a top 100 prospect, a really good fielder, uh, a pretty good runner. He's got a little bit of pop. He was going to probably start out the year at AAA Salt Lake. We find out that he has an elbow strain and the Angels are questioning whether you know, what? It, what is his participation going to be like this spring? He might need to start out the season on the injured list. That's unfortunate for him. He was hurt diving for a catch in the outfield, according to Joe Madden. Uh, we'll keep an eye on this. We'll, we'll see if he does return. Uh, I know he talked to some reporters and, and said he wasn't too worried about it at the time. He actually took an at-bat after the injury. Uh, so we'll see how it comes together. It is on his left elbow. Uh, he throws with his right arm, so it's not going to be an issue of – 
you know, is the elbow good enough to throw on? He doesn't need it to throw. He just needs it to be in place to do more athletic things and not re-injure it on a catch or a dive into a base or something like that. So, you know, we'll be keeping an eye on that one. Uh, Emmanuel Classe with the Indians uh, came out today. He's been injured. He's going to be out four to six weeks. Anybody who got to see him pitch either in the Texas Rangers system or when he joined the Indians after uh, Corey Kluber trade knows that his stuff is elite. He can really pump it, hit triple digits with ease. Uh, I was really excited by the idea of him pitching in a bullpen with James Karinczak and Brad Hand. Uh, that that back end of that Indians bullpen was going to be elite, I think, uh, given what Class A and Karinczak was were going to bring to the table. Obviously, Hand adding to that as well. Uh, but Class A being on the the DL for a while is worrisome. That length of time being shut down, what is, what is he going to be like when he comes back? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, it's kind of disappointing for that to happen. But you know, we are in the point of the season now, as as Tyler said there, uh, where you know injuries are going to happen now or things are going to be discovered. The more guys play, the more physical they get, the more potential for something to go wrong uh, increases. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on th- how these things come and how these guys recover uh, from some of these injuries. Will Brandon Marsh be able to come back, you know, at the end of spring? We'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, more and more of these are going to come as we get closer to the season, unfortunately. And strike three this week, a story that uh, went up on the site on Tuesday, Tuesday, Monday. What day? I don't remember. One of them. It was early. Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. Our farm system rankings continue uh, as we list organizations numbers 30 through 1 in uh, talent among prospects 21 years old and under. So the best young prospects in baseball and um, some organizations at the top. Not really huge surprises with how good their young talent is. Yeah, and, and for anybody who hasn't read the story yet, obviously go check it out. Uh, it's Farm System Rankings, 21 and under, as Tyler just said. I can't stress that and under enough. Uh, it's not under 21. It's guys who will be tw- age 21 and younger on opening day of minor league baseball in 2020. So that's April 9th. Uh, if they are 22 before that date, they do not make the cut. So you might look at this ranking and wonder, you know, for instance, Tyler, you actually wrote this section. You had the bottom section. Uh, the Chicago White Sox are number 30, which we discussed. We didn't it take that much time to discuss it. it. It seemed like it was a pretty easy pick. But the, why were the White Sox number 30? Yeah, the thing that's so interesting about that story, we talked about it uh, when we were breaking this all down, figuring out where everybody was going to land. It's not necessarily bad news for White Sox fans at all. Um, They've got some guys right now in that system who are so close to the major leagues or who have already broken into the major leagues with Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal and Andrew Vaughn and uh, these guys who are making the climb. They just don't have a lot of guys uh, right now who you're waiting on from the the standpoint of growth. The really interesting thing is that it seems like basically everybody in that system is like 22 or 23. So even the guys who aged out of this qualification are still young guys uh, between Robert and Vaughn, uh, Michael Kopech, who is uh, on the road back and almost fully recovered from Tommy John surgery. Um, last year, the White Sox went with uh, a couple of guys in the draft who fell into this category, but um, they come in at number 30 and yet it's not really bad news because i think it also forced the hand of that front office as we discussed in our uh, our internal discussions about this to go out and have the offseason that they had um so for white Sox fans it's kind of okay you come in dead last in this 
because your window is opening right now for contention at the major league level and you've got uh, so many of your your best prospects already there or at least close to there uh, who have reached sort of major league age at this point right and what this basically comes down to for the White Sox is you know Robert's going to graduate pretty quickly, we think. Madrigal's going to be right behind him. Andrew Vaughn, a college hitter, an advanced college hitter as a first baseman, the hope is that he moves quickly as well. Once those three graduate, barring some breakouts from you know Matthew Thompson or Andrew Dahlquist, uh, this is going to be kind of a slim system. And, and I think, Tyler, you mentioned it very, very well there. Uh, you know, you look at the the state of the system and you realize, OK, we can't afford to be sitting on our hands right now and have these guys graduate with nobody around them. Uh, we need to pour major league resources into this team right now. And that's how you end up signing Esmani Grandal. You bring back Jose Abreu. You bring in Edwin Encarnacion. Uh, you make some of the other signings that they made. Looking at the other end of the spectrum, uh, Number one was, I think, very easy pick for us at, with the San Diego Padres. Basically, the big name prospects you know for the Padres are 21 and under. Gore, Patino, Camposano, C.J. Abrams, even Adrian Morahone, who made his major league debut last year, still fits the category. Uh, a lot of excitement there for the Padres. The Braves were at number two. Christian Pache and Drew Waters, again, guys who have already played at AAA, are still 21 and younger. That's great for them. Ian Anderson, their best pitching prospect, uh, who has since moved past guys like Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson, he also slots in here. You're not going to find a top three much better than the Braves, except for probably with the Padres. Uh, Number three, we had the St. Louis Cardinals. This one surprised me before we did the rankings, but once we put them together, it kind of made sense. Dylan Carlson, everybody thinks he should be a major leaguer already. It's it's kind of funny to remember he was young for his draft class. He still fits this category. Nolan Gorman, their their uh, first round pick from two years ago, is there. They just picked up Matthew Liebertor, uh, who was good friends with Nolan Gorman. That's a, a solid three to to build on. But then they've got guys like Yvonne Herrera, Trajan Fletcher, who we've talked to on the podcast before. They've got a, a solid base beyond that top three. So that's what moved them into three here. The Seattle Mariners at four. Again, when we were doing the draft for this, I will probably would have put the Mariners in the top three just based on Jared Kelnick, Julio Rodriguez alone. Uh, but it kind of falls off as of that. You got somebody like Sam Carlson who's coming off Tommy John surgery. A lot of promise, but we just haven't seen it yet. Uh, Noel V. Marte, I know some people were very high on him. Again, we haven't seen it for a full season, so we'll see how that goes. Mariners coming at four. Tampa Bay Rays. You want to be wicked excited by the idea of Wander Franco. He alone is going to put any team in the top five. Uh, they build it up from there with Xavier Edwards and Shane Boz. Uh, but again, after that top three, it falls off pretty quick. And that's why we end up with the raise of five. I won't go through the rest of the list. That's the top five and the bottom one. You guys can read it to see where everybody else placed. But um, yeah, this, this is kind of a look forward to what will the farm overall farm system rankings potentially look like a year from now? Uh, because th- these are looking at the younger generations, guys who aren't necessarily likely to graduate right away uh, as they gain one more experience and the older guys fall off. This might be what the overall rankings look like a year from now. We'll have to tune in the same time uh, 12 months from now. Uh, also, if you have not already visited, um, MLB Pipeline has a brand new Top 100 page, which you can go check out uh, right now at uh, MLB.com slash prospects. Um, we don't get paid for that plug, but I will accept uh, any Pipeline merchandise you want to throw my way, Pipeline. 
<laughs> you punks. Um, I, I will say, though, uh, bring back the search function because uh, there there is not a search function on it right now. and I They, they are I bringing it. it back. Yes. They, they yes. have said. Um, okay, yeah, just to echo what, I really like this new presentation. It's a really good yeah. layout. Yeah. It, it really looks sleek and modern. Not that the old way wasn't, but uh, I really enjoy the way that it's laid out and everybody is there and they, they show like – what level guys are at, but there's also like a loading bar for that, which looks yeah, kind of, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And you can click on guys and their, uh, you know, their scouting report comes up as a sidebar. So you can still kind of scroll at the same time. It's a really fun way to, to do it. Uh, I'm, I was really excited when I saw it for the first time today. Uh, didn't get, you know, new knowledge that they were doing that. So go check that out with pipeline. Also one cool thing that I will note that they're doing now as well, kind of, cross-company synergy, not to go all Jack Donaghy on, on this, but um, if you go under the news tab, if you kick, click on your favorite prospect, go under the news tab, there will actually be the MILB.com stories that we've written about that player. Um, so you know, it's MLB Pipeline's rankings and, and their rankings we use, but you can find our stories on your favorite players there as well. It's really cool. Very cool stuff, and uh, you can check it all out at uh, mlb.com and milb.com one fun quirk i find to that page that they list um level eta estimated time to arrive in the major leagues age height weight and then bats and throws so in case you wanted to know like what handedness casey mize bats with uh in the tiger (laughs) system or nate pearson in the blue jay system who have not batted in the minor leagues and will not bat at the major league level uh now you know hey trades could happen well that's true that's true and if we adopt the universal dh soon um maybe they'll never bat which is, you know, here, here. It's a uh, member of this podcast. That's bad. That's bad. Is what no, that is. it's no. bad. It's coming. It's bad is what it is. Um, you also used wicked excited earlier in case anybody was wondering if, uh, which among us was the Red Sox fan, <laughs> which one of us is the, uh, Massachusetts native or the, who, who the pejorative that I will not use. Smat pack. Um, no, we don't get paid by them either. I'm not going to keep dropping uncompensated things uh that'll do it for three strikes on the six episodes of the show before the show well we are uh continuing on here with the show with just me and ben ben welcome into the show milb.com's benjamin hill let me give you your full name and title it is my full name my parents uh deliberated a lot and decided to uh, go with milb.com's benjamin (laughs) hill that is my full name and uh kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that I ended up at this job but you know I think we had to hire you at that point yeah so they're 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 uh they achieve what they set out to do which is really visionary considering the internet wasn't even invented yet we didn't know what dot com meant no at the time no let alone what milled might be but anyway this is a story for another day I have a very interesting life story but for now it's just another I don't mean just another every podcast segment is uh is special but it's another a podcast segment and uh of course, we're missing Tyler right now, and I just want to say, Tyler, I miss you. Yeah, no, we'll uh, we'll check in with Tyler. Well, you guys have already heard heard from Tyler, but uh, yeah, we'll check in with Tyler, all three of us, uh, back again next week. But one thing I wanted to get to this week is, is kind of a fun story that I always look forward to you doing every year. Uh, we have one conversation, you know, when minor league baseball releases its attendance numbers. Last year, it came out over forty one and a half million fans uh, came to ball parks in 2019 a 2.6% increase uh, over 2018 that's obviously exciting we talked about that a little bit in the fall when those numbers came out but you got to dive a little bit deeper 
into those numbers, what drove them, some other exciting things, thanks to the number tamer. Uh, tell us about this story you wrote for the site. Yeah, I mean, obviously these uh, minor league attendance totals came out shortly after the season concluded, and that was attendance was basically a topic for you know the very early stages of the offseason. I did write a story at the time about how uh, minor league baseball's attendance gains were driven largely by, well, one, the Mexican League that we don't talk about very often, but they had a uh, quite a big increase. You know, they're not affiliated, but they are part of the National Association of, of Professional Baseball Leagues. Uh, also, you know, new ballparks is just the biggest uh, single driver from year to year uh, because not only do fans flock to new ballparks, but they often replace ballparks in which fans were not coming to. But here we are. Many months after September, we're much more now uh, looking forward than looking back. But there is a man named uh, David Kronheim, and I hope I'm saying his name, his last name right. Uh, he's a Queens-based, uh, you know, consultant. You know, who, who he, he tames numbers. He's the number tamer, and uh, you know, so he works with people to help make sense of their data, um, in all sorts of ways. And he is just a huge baseball fan, and he does. Uh, free of charge and for his own, you know, enjoyment and uh, for the benefit of others, uh, annual minor and major league baseball attendance reports that are just spectacular. If you're into truly looking at minor league baseball attendance numbers, uh, league by league, year by year, uh, region by region, class by class, affiliate by affiliate, um, basically any way you can parse the numbers with a ton of historical perspective, you know, really well written too. Um, I'd really recommend checking it out, numbertamer.com. Um, so I've written stories kind of based around number tamer data quite a bit over the last couple of years. Um, but this year I just said, you know, it's, it's a 211-page report. I understand the average person is not going to go too deep into a 211-page minor league baseball attendance report, although some certainly do love mm. to do that kind of thing. Uh, so I spent a good amount of time going through the whole report and just kind of making a lot of notes and then writing an article just based on some interesting facts and figures I found. Uh, if you want to go to numbertamer.com, click on Baseball Reports, check it out, you'll probably find a whole new set of uh, you know, facts and figures that you know, make sense to you or that, that are exciting to you. But in the article, I talk about things like you know, things that aren't included in the official attendance, uh, playoff numbers, all-star game numbers, um, you know, just kind of weird facts. This wasn't even so much in the report, but one thing led to another is, and I just kind of discovered this on my own, and I like that I do have a forum for such random baseball facts, but uh, as you may know, you know, there's 160 minor league teams, but only 159 ballparks because one ballpark is shared between two teams. That's Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium, um, which is the spring training home of the Cardinals and Marlins and then also hosts their Florida State League affiliates, the Jupiter Hammerheads and the Palm Beach Cardinals. And I was looking at it, and I saw that, oh, the Hammerheads outdrew the Cardinals this year, you know, by not much, by, you know, less than 1,000 per game average, 973 to 1,045. These two teams share a stadium. It's the Florida State League. They play in an old spring training or in a, a spring training complex once the big leaguers uh, head out. Um, so I just started looking at year to year, and the Jupiter Hammerheads, uh, every year since 2007, have outdrawn the Palm Beach Cardinals, who they share a stadium with every year but one since 2007. Uh, every year but 2016, Jupiter has outdrawn Drew Palm Beach. And it's just like, why did that happen? I, can, I don't have a reason for I it. I mean, the reason I would give, maybe, is that Jupiter is a Marlins affiliate. Yes. This is a southeastern Florida team. You know, if you're looking to just at on-the-field product, who are you more likely 
to want to go see, is it the Marlins prospects or the Cardinals prospects? You're probably going to want to go to the Marlins prospects. That's just my guess. I, I do think it's, uh, I mean, it's very close. Like you said, it's only a difference of like 70-something. Uh, but, yeah, that, that's the only explanation I have. But the fact that it, it's been every year since 2007 except for 2016 is, is notable. It just seemed kind of random and, uh, you know, just one of those things I thought would make an interesting note in an article like this. Um, you know, another interesting one is uh, the franchise that has had historically in all of minor league baseball history the most f- seasons of 500,000-plus attendance is the Columbus Clippers. They have drawn over 500,000 fans every season, um, not since 1979, but 33 times since 1979. They have drawn over 500,000. That's the most 500,000-plus uh, seasons in minor league baseball history. That said, the Buffalo Bisons have out have uh, drawn over 500,000 fans in each of the last 32 seasons. So they have one total less, but they've done it 32 seasons consecutively, which I believe you know matches up perfectly with the amount of time they've been in their current ballpark, mm. uh, which was initially, I believe, called Pilot Field, but it's changed names a lot uh, due to the corporate naming I was just going to call it Coca-Cola Park yeah, it could, out of you know, history and, and uh, muscle memory. But. Yeah, so um, go to the numbertamer.com. Uh, if you if you like minor league attendance, well, first read this article on milb.com. Uh, a lot of fun facts and figures related to uh, minor league baseball attendance. You know, I could go on and on. Um, yeah, there's one that I want to touch on real quick before we move on to the next thing, which was the Appalachian League and the Northwest League both had banner years in 2019. Um, both are short season levels. Appalachian League is a rookie advanced level now, uh, but the Appy League drew over 400,000. Uh, 411,189 to be exact, which is its best total since 1994. Uh, the Northwest League averaged 3,670 uh, fans per game. They had an all-time attendance high of 1.1 million. Uh, what is it about these two leagues that that worked so well, uh, at least historically, last year? Well, I mean, I think the Northwest League, as I mentioned in the story, um, you know, I don't think this may be the number one factor. Um, but the Northwest League did not have a single lost date in 2019, meaning you know it's a 76-game season. Each team has 38 home games, and every team played a you know a game on one of its regularly scheduled dates. They did not lose a date at all. So you know a lot of time weather can be a factor because you know when you lose a game due to a rainout and then you play a doubleheader, you know that's just one opening. It's two games, but it's only one day at the gate <laughs> as regards your attendance. So. Um, the fact that every team in that league, yes, you have some teams in some dry regions up in the Northwest League, but to have 38 um, eight teams each play all the 38 scheduled home games uh, and not have them at all uh, postponed for any reason whatsoever is remarkable. And I just think if you look at the Northwest League, they have just a lot of really high-performing franchises, um, you know, operationally, front office-wise. Um, you know, the Vancouver Canadians are just killing it every year in Vancouver. For years and years and years, the highest attended um, short-season club was the Brooklyn Cyclones, who still do, you know, very well in the grand scheme of things. But then Vancouver has overtaken them in each of the last four years. Uh, Vancouver, playing at old Nat Bailey Stadium, um, has been the number one short-season team. Mm. You also have the Hillsborough Hops, you know, playing in the greater Portland, you know, region, you know, real strong entity there. Spokane does a great job with an old ballpark. Uh, you know, really packs them in. I mean, and you also do have the benefit of it being short season. So you have a lot of, uh, by short season standards, larger markets that only have to, you know, get people in during the best time of the entire calendar right. year in which to get people in. 
So, you know, that's been the case for a long time, but I think uh, you just have a lot of high-performing franchises. You know, the weather has worked out. You know, luck has been in their favor a little bit, and uh, it's really cool to see. And then in the Appy League, um, you know, the big story in the Appy League for the last half decade has been uh, Pulaski, you know, which was they play at Calfee Park. You don't have to go back that far. There was even, was it 2008, seven? It wasn't that long ago that the Appy League had to play a nine-team schedule, a super awkward, odd number of teams, because Pulaski did not even field a team. They could not find an affiliate. And uh, when they were playing, they were last in the Appy League in attendance. But uh, they had new ownership come in, invest a lot of money in the facility. They continue to make improvements every year, You know, bolstered the front office staff. And every year, over the last five years, uh, the Pulaski Yankees just – set a new record, essentially. And this year, they drew 95,000, over 95,000 fans, 95, 897, the most of any Appy League team ever since that league switched to a short-season format in 1957. So, I mean, that is a really remarkable uh, turn of events for, you know, the league and especially Pulaski. And, um, you know, on top of that, Johnson City, a lot of ballpark investments, uh, you know, has been run differently and with a kind of younger, more energetic staff. Um, I believe it's Boyd Sports that runs them. Um, you know, they have been, they set a new attendance record. Elizabethton, um, you know, which had been run just by the city of Elizabethton, their parks and rec uh, department, you know, they switched, um, not ownership, but, uh, you know, their their day-to-day -day operational staff, and they had some big gains. So, um, you know, in a, in a time, um, you know, when these leagues are, you know, their, their future is threatened. It's great to see that, you know, they're performing really well and they have that going for them. Yeah, and, and just to kind of end on this point, we'll move on to the next thing. Uh, one thing that we kept putting out there, the raw data, you know, you talk about Pulaski Yankees drawing almost 96,000. That might not sound like that much to you at home, but one thing I think this piece does a really good job of is putting that into context. And the fact that that's the most of any Appy League team uh, since 1957, as you said, that that's the important part. The raw number might not be that much to you, but when you can see the game growing in these areas, that's important. That's something that we always want to drive home here. So, yeah, uh, yeah check out the piece on online. It's called The Deeper Look at Miners' 2019 Attendance. Uh, moving on to that, getting back into uh, 2020 mode, looking forward at this season. Uh, one club in particular revealed a new food identity. That's not new. This one specifically is. The Lexington Legends became or will become this year, I should say, the Kentucky Beer Cheese. What can you tell us about this one? Yeah, that's from August 13th to 15th, and I could be missing something because I often am. I'm very used to saying this is the first time whatever happened, and then I'm forgetting something. But I think, was that my phone or yours? That was your phone. Yeah. Man, that is so rude. Why am I? My goodness, I always thought I had silent mode on. To the listeners, I, I apologize for that technical snafu. Um, but I believe, going back to my the, the main point here, uh, that was just Walgreens telling me my prescription was wrong. Oh, good. <laughs> um, my point here, we have seen with the release of promo schedules a lot of uh, food identities that have been announced in the past coming back for 2020. You know, of course, like Fresno Tacos, uh, Inland Empire doing the burritos, uh, Omaha going back to the Runzas, uh, that sort of thing. But I believe this is the first time it took until now. Uh, this was just yesterday. Well, yesterday as we're talking, um, just uh, Wednesday, that the Legends did their first ever uh, alternate food identity, uh, changing their name to the Kentucky Beer Cheese. And if you're from that region, Central Kentucky, or really, of course, all of Kentucky, and uh, even outside of Kentucky, of course, uh, you're familiar with beer cheese. It's a highly spreadable cheese, uh, obviously, in which beer is a 
prominent ingredient. Uh, you know, it's a little, uh, it's kind of fairly brightly colored. It's, uh, you know, there's usually uh, regular and hot varieties. Um, you know, it's spread on a cracker, used in soups and sauces and uh, sandwich toppings and all kind of things. So uh, Brandios did this one. And uh, you have this uh, Kentucky beer cheese, you know, kind of orange, yellow, blue color scheme. You know, first time Lexington is, uh, you know, rebranded with, uh, you know, Kentucky in its name representing the whole state. You have this main uh, image, main logo of an anthropomorphic cracker whose facial features are the cheese the, itself. The cheese itself. So the cracker is his body and the cheese on top of the cracker comprise his facial features. And he's walking around. Uh, with a big uh, spreading knife, like hap- and it has a dollop of beer cheese on it. And you wonder, did he get that dollop from his face? Does he have excess face that he can put on the knife and then <laughs> spread somewhere else? It just always begs the question of when do these mascots gain sentience? Yeah. <laughs> is it when the cheese makes contact with the cracker? Is it because there's another logo here that is included in this story of a bowl of beer cheese, and the bowl itself has a face, yeah. the knife itself has a face, and the cheese on the cracker has a face, but the cheese in the bowl does not yet have a face. Where does all this come from? Where In a Toy Story mode, the, the more you think about it, the more you go crazy. But, uh, yeah, it's always funny to think about. It, it really is, and, and, and that logo you just talked about with the knife, the bowl, uh, the cracker with the cheese face... Um, they are not just smiling. They look like rapturously happy. Yeah, yeah. They look ecstatic to be alive <laughs> and to be playing the very specific functions in which they were born into. To be a either delivery system, storage unit, uh, or the cheese itself. They are ecstatic, and I'm very happy for them. And I hope they enjoy the remainder of their uh, their lives. Mm. And we don't know when it started. And, I think that's a little above our pay grade. But uh, August 13th to 15th, Lexington Legends, Kentucky Beer Cheese, probably the first new alternate food identity of 2020. And uh, while we're on the mode of promos, uh, we've been kind of doing this the last couple weeks, is featuring one wacky one out there that maybe you haven't written about yet, but uh, is deserving of attention or something we just want to highlight quick. The one that actually hit the Internet uh, hard and fast this past week was that the San Jose Giants will be hosting a Mason Saunders night on Friday, June 5th. If Mason Saunders doesn't mean anything to you yet, uh, please give it a Google search. It, it, the, the basic story is that Madison Bumgarner competed at, in rodeos, and he did, did it under the name Mason Saunders. Didn't want people to find out that he was doing this, didn't want all that type of attention, but definitely wanted... Uh, to get involved in roping somehow. So he did this under Mason Saunders, won, I think, $26,000 doing so. It was very good. Uh, there's a whole story on The Athletic about it. Go read that. But San Jose jumping on this train before. When we were talking before the show, you kind of called this a PR or a press release po- promo. What kind of history do these types of promos get? And are they usually success- successful? Because come June 5th, are we going to still be talking about Mason Saunders? Yeah, I mean, the team put out a press release, uh, the San Jose Giants, um, you know, obviously a Giants affiliate and obviously a Madison Bumgarner. He's moved on, but he's obviously very you know, beloved among Giants fans. So there's that obvious tie-in. Um, but this is one of those quirky stories that, you know, were fun and funny and certainly kind of weird in February. On June 5th, is the average fan going to remember Mason Saunders? Probably not. 
that Madison Bumgarner's rodeo alter ego. And the team has a few details around the promo. Uh, you know, most, um, you know, the biggest being a, a rodeo jersey giveaway. And then, of course, some, you know, kind of uh, standard uh, minor league stuff. Um, you know, fans are encouraged to dress up as their alias or alter ego in order to win special prizes. Um, you know, so it got out on the Internet, you know, some national outlets picked it up. It got a lot of play on Twitter. And that is the main goal. Like the, the term I used um, that you just mentioned, uh, you know, and I've heard people in the industry refer to it as such, is a press release promo, meaning that you're going to get the most play off the press release itself as opposed to any real deeply meaningful in-ballpark engagement, um, especially when there's a month's gap between the relatively forgettable story and the promo itself. And uh, – this is one of those things, you know, that be like, man, I've been at this job too long. But I was trying to think of similar promos, and I was like, wait, San Jose. San Jose is doing Mason Saunders night. And I looked it up, and of course, I wrote about it. In 2013, they did a promo in honor of, Mant- was it Manti Teo? Oh, Manti Teo, Manti yes. Teo's fictional girlfriend, Lene Kakua. Right. And they did a Lene Kakua promo in honor of this fictitious girlfriend. Seven years later... They're doing a promo in honor of this fictitious Mason Saunders, who is actually the alter ego of Madison Bumgarner. So I feel like I'm one of the few people out there who can connect the dots. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we think about promos like that. You know, Frisco Rough Riders, like runner-up night that they announced in the wake of um, the Miss America. I believe it was a Miss Universe oh, snafu yeah. with uh, – I can't remember the specific Is that Steve Harvey? Yeah, who, Steve, yeah, Steve Harvey. And then they did a similar one with uh, when the Academy Awards, uh, you know, was a disaster with right. the, the reading. The, 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 the La La Land was announced, but actually Moonlight had won. And that, that yeah, so thing. that sort of thing, you know, announcing a promo off of that. In the, in the moment when everyone's talking about that and thinking about it, it just kind of, you know, and a minor league team jumps. It's like, oh, my God, minor league baseball is the best. And you see those quote tweets, you know, minor league baseball remains undefeated. And it's great. I think a lot of teams see the value in just getting their name out there for something goofy and irreverent like this. Um, but I don't also think they necessarily accept, expect, you know, much of a box office draw or long-term sustainable success with it. And I think there's, um, I don't want to say division within the industry, but just different approaches. I think some teams would be like, that's not worth it because what we're trying to do is have our promos all have direct, you know, engagement at the ballpark. And I think some teams are like, hey, if – by brainstorming in the office for an hour or two, writing up a funny press release, we can get national publicity. Why not? Like, and still do a promo, and it might be a very good promo. Right. You know, I think we'll I check back in in June. Right, and I think I err on that side. Or if I was in, working for a team, I think I'd be like, yeah, let's just do this. Let's get it out there. Let's say we're doing this, and then like, let's do it. I can th- think of times when teams have announced stuff and then not done it at all, and no one noticed except <laughs> except except me. I believe I remember a Fort Myers miracle, Fort Myers miracle doing some sort of, and this is the, the things that come up, you know, a Marco Rubio like water bottle night. Right, which was his response to the State of the Union. Right, and I remember that got a lot of play, and then they announced when they were going to do it, and that day came, and there was no mention. And I was like the only one who was like, oh, you guys going to do this promo? <laughs> and, I, and I think in some cases it really doesn't matter. Just say you're going to do it. And uh, everyone forgets. It's the internet. <laughs> right. Not saying the San Jose Giants are going to forget. You're going to get a jersey. You're going to get a rodeo jersey on Mason Saunders night. So, um, you know, be there. Not only that, but you get two free future game tickets 
uh, if you show up in a Bumgarner jersey or a rodeo outfit. And I really hope there are more rodeo outfits than Bumgarner jerseys. I'm sure I'll be wrong on that, but I really want a lot of people showing up in rodeo outfits. Uh, when one thing we should be doing with these, I think, is like the next time something goes viral in baseball circles, just start taking side bets on who is going to be the minor league team to jump on it. San Jose would have been a pretty good guess. Thought maybe somebody in the Arizona system could have done it, but uh, kind of interesting that San Jose is the, the first one to do this, and I don't think anybody else can really jump on this train now. Once it's been done, it's been done. Uh, but anyway, so, yeah, people can follow you on Twitter, at Ben's Biz. Uh, follow your stuff on the site, MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. Uh, yeah, and we'll talk to you next week with Tyler here. It won't just be me, I promise. Uh, but, yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Sam. And uh, Tyler, I'm looking forward to speaking to you again, hearing your voice. Uh, you know, that, 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 that beloved combination of uh, joy and enthusiasm and a uh, bone-deep pessimism and cynicism at the same time. He's like the yin and yang and, and contained within that one individual. Topic. I wish we could hear Well, we will next week. Thank you. Final segment from the new setting of this week's episode of the show before the show, all the way across my office room. It's, I'm I'm high on it. I like it. I'll I like know, it look, better during the daytime because I'm sitting between two windows right now. Oh, even well, that's, better then. That's very nice. Look at you saying you have an office room, though. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because it's just like the tiniest bedroom in an already tiny house. And I was like, I'm gonna make this my office. There's a guest room too, and that's also tiny. Um, but it's cool, you know. It's uh, it's I feel so grown up. <laughs> also, Talk recording about your an episode without my dog around. She's at my dad's house right now because I was gone for a, a road trip for the the basketball team that I work with, um, and uh, I did not get her back. So ordinarily, like you would have already heard her jingle or collar nine times coming in here and shaking next to me to get me to pet her. And so it's been a it's been a very quiet episode. Yeah, before the show. Well, I'm sure Leica will be back next week. She will. She'll be back. I miss and, her. Uh, even, I know. even when it's just a jingle jangle. Same. Same here. I get it. Believe me. Um, yeah, so that'll do it uh, for this week's episode of the show before the show. Again, you can get in touch with the podcast at MILB.com, on Twitter at Sam Dykstra, MILB, and at Tyler Mon. And, uh, yeah, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week.